Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our eyes and our minds. God, that you would make us attentive to your voice and that intending to your voice, God, we would be changed, that we would be shaped and formed to be your faithful people in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So if you are visiting with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series in a book called 1 Corinthians. And if you're new to Christianity, 1 Corinthians is a letter, actually, that one of the great leaders, in fact, the greatest leader in the early Christian movement named the Apostle Paul, it was a letter that he wrote to a church in the first century city of Corinth, which was in Greece. Corinth, as was mentioned a couple weeks ago by Pastor Robert, was a big, kind of sprawling, metropolitan city. It was uh, full of wealth and uh, uh, competitive and just a, a really robust city, not unlike Los Angeles. And so we've been looking together at this letter that he wrote to a church in this large, sprawling, metropolitan city. And we've seen again and again, Paul addresses throughout this letter's highly relevant topics. He talks to us about divisions in the church over celebrity pastors. He speaks about lawsuits and sex and singleness and marriage and divorce. He talks about all kinds of issues that are of high relevance to many of our lives. And even though this letter was written 2,000 years ago, very often it sounds like, gosh, he is writing this to us. But this morning we come to a a section in this letter that, quite frankly, can sound very strange and foreign to many of us. I don't know if you listened to the reading, but it was all this stuff about tongues and prophecy. Uh, Next week, we're going to look at what uh, he says in this passage about prophecy. But this morning, we're going to look together at the topic of speaking in tongues. Now, this is, a, this is a tricky, it's a tricky topic for us to address in the church. And, and it's tricky, it's kind of problematic for a couple different reasons. First, it's a controversial issue in the church. I mean, from the Pentecostal movement in the early 20th century to the new charismatic movement in the latter part of the 20th century, this has been an issue that has divided the church. And many of us have had a variety of experiences, good, bad, and ugly with this stuff. And often our experience colors, it affects how we read and understand scripture and how we think about these issues. And of course, if you're new to Christianity, this stuff just sounds strange. I was talking to my brother-in-law yesterday and he said, uh, he was asking what I was going to preach on today. And I said, oh, I'm preaching on speaking in tongues. And he says, oh, are you also going to talk about snake handling? And... uh, (laughs) But if you're new to Christianity, this can sound strange. And you can think, I feel so compelled by Christianity and the ethic of love that stands at its center. It's so compelling, but tongues, speaking in tongues, is that a part of Christianity? And if you were invited here this morning, maybe by a friend, a family member, or whatever, and this is your first time here, right now your friend or family member that invited you is bummed. And... (laughs) But just come back next week. But this morning, we're going to be looking together at this issue. So it's controversial, it's difficult, it's tricky, but we have to talk about it because it's an issue that is addressed in Scripture. 
and it certainly wasn't a part of the experience of the early Christian movement. It's the part of, of the experience of many, many Christians in our world today. The, one of the largest expressions of Christianity in our world today is charismatic and Pentecostal expressions of Christianity. And so we have to think about this. We've got to talk about it. And I think actually in exploring this issue, we're going to see some really important things about Christian spirituality. So I want to invite you to explore this passage with me this morning. Now, we're going to basically explore the passage by asking two questions. First, we're going to ask a question to the text, namely, what is tongues all about anyway? And we're going to see how the text yields an answer to that question. And then secondly, I just want to ask a simple question, what am I supposed to do with this? What do we do with a, a teaching like this in Scripture? So what are tongues, and what are we supposed to do with this stuff? So let's, let's first talk about what tongues are. So 15 times in these 25 verses, Paul addresses the issue of tongues. Now, really, the whole passage is a compare and contrast with prophecy, which is another issue that we'll have to talk about next week. But this week, we're going to kind of hone in on what he says about tongues. And I want us to make three observations about tongues, and I'm going to put together in one sentence, in answer to the question, what are tongues according to scripture? You know, speaking in tongues actually is not a phenomenon that's unique to Christianity. There are other religions in the world. There are other experiences people have had that are, have been called tongues or speaking in tongues. People have gotten in kind of frenzied kind of experiences. I don't know if they shook like that, but they probably did. And, um, but, but what does the Bible mean? What is the Bible talk? What is Paul talking about when he speaks about speaking in tongues? Well, here is my working definition. Speaking in tongues is this. It is unintelligible speech that is addressed to God and is prompted by the Holy Spirit. So speaking in tongues is unintelligible speech that is addressed to God and prompted by the Holy Spirit. Now let's pull this apart. Let me just show you each one of these elements in the text. First, it is unintelligible speech. Look at what it says in verse one. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. But now he contrasts prophecy with tongues. He says, verse two, for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. And listen to this, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So he says, tongues is speech. It is language that is unintelligible to both the speaker and the hearer. No one understands the person who speaks in tongues. He utters mysteries in the spirit. And then a little bit later in verse six, he puts it like this. He says, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? The idea is that any prophetic word or knowledge or prophecy or teaching that he would give them would be intelligible. It would be understandable. And because it is logical and rational and intelligible, they would get something out of it and it would build them up. But he says, not so with tongues. He says instead, verse 9, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? So do you see what he's saying? Tongues are speech. It's a language that is unintelligible to both the speaker as well as the hearer. And Paul in verses 6 down to verse 8, he gives a couple uh, examples of this. He says, look, he says, think about uh, instruments. Verse 6, he says, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring to you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? He says, if even lifeless instruments, such as a flute or a harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? 
And if a bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So he says, look, if you are in the army and you're in camp or whatever and you hear this sound in the morning, you know, you know what it means. It's intelligible. It means get up. But if in the morning you hear the sound that goes, you would think, what? It's unintelligible. We don't know what it means. And he says, he uses that as an analogy for tongues. He says, look, it is unintelligible speech that's unintelligible to both the speaker and the hearer. And so N.T. Wright, a great New Testament scholar, describes tongues like this. He says, it is the gift of speech which though making sounds and using apparent or actual languages bypasses the speaker's mind. But that raises a question. What are we even, are we talking about an actual language or is this just kind of like weird noises that people are making with their mouth? You know, what, what are we even talking about anyway? Well, listen, unintelligible doesn't mean that it's gibberish. It doesn't mean that it's meaningless. Paul in our text clearly thinks about this as a language. In fact, the word tongues is, is a common nomenclature in the first century world for a language, as in they were from every tribe and nation and tongue, meaning language. And of course, Paul goes on and he talks about how the, the tongues can actually be interpreted. Language can be interpreted. And then look at what he says in verse 10. He, he, he uses the analogy of human languages to describe speaking in tongues. Verse 10, he says, For there are doubtless many languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and a speaker a foreigner to me. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, it is a language. It communicates something. It communicates meaning. And yet, the meaning that it communicates is undiscernible. It's unintelligible. And so number one, tongues are a language. Now, some have asked, well, is it a human language? Is it some kind of heavenly or angelic language? You know, because Paul, early in 1 Corinthians, talks about the tongues of men and of angels. Well, every instance we have in the New Testament of people speaking in tongues, they actually speak in known human languages. And it's interpreted, and people who know those languages understand them. But Paul does kind of give an indication that there's another form of tongues. Maybe there's a whole spectrum. On the one hand are human languages, but then on the other end are more kind of indistinct and unknown languages and just kind of, you know, <laughs> noises and sounds we're making with our mouth that, that are prompted somehow by the Holy Spirit that God is, is using that in some way communicates meaning. And that leads us to our second point. So number one, tongues are unintelligible speech, but number two, I want you to see that it's unintelligible speech that is addressed to God. In other words, it communicates, but who does it communicate to? It communicates to God, because look at what he says in verse two. He says, for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to who? To God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. And so some people have described speaking in tongues as a prayer language. It is communication. It's communing with God. Now, that raises a question. Why on earth would uh, the Holy Spirit be at work in people's lives to enable them to speak in a language that bypasses their intellect and that enables them to speak words that have no meaning to themselves or to anyone around them? 
And I thought about that this week. I thought, how on earth is that beneficial to anyone? But have you ever had the experience in your life of not knowing how to pray or what to pray? And you're just kind of like, you, you almost don't know what to say, and you almost find yourself just groaning in the presence of God. And haven't you ever found yourself in your life in moments where you want to praise God, but you feel like human language is insufficient for the task? And you feel like you need something that takes you beyond your own capacities and your own abilities. Your intellect is insufficient to capture the magnitude of God's infinity and God's beauty and his glory. And so too, this is, is, it's, 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 it's a spirit-prompted way in which people commune with God in prayer and in praise. And notice down in verse 15, he again describes it as both prayer and praise. He says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit and I will pray with my mind also. And I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing also with my mind. Anybody remember in Acts chapter two when the spirit fell upon the church and they spoke in tongues? Do you remember the interpretation? It was all praises to God. And so this is a language that's enabled by God in order to address God. James Dunn, one New Testament scholar, puts it like this. He says one, and I like this definition, or I like this, this description, he says this. One who experiences tongues experiences it as effective communication with God. The prayer which he finds himself unable to utter, the spirit utters through him, giving him the sense of communing with God, the confidence that God knows his situation and needs better than he himself does. So he says, this is, this is speaking in tongues. It is, it is addressing to, to God in, in, in praise and in, in prayer that transcends or bypasses human understanding. It's interesting, this week I was, or last week I was reading an article in the New York Times on speaking in tongues, and it was written by a psychiatrist, and apparently there's been a lot of studies done at kind of a psychiatric and therapeutic level of this phenomenon of speaking in tongues because there are literally millions of people in the world that claim to have this experience. And of the sample group that they took of tongue speakers and non-tongue speakers, they did a neurological examination of what was happening in the person's kind of psyche while they were speaking in tongues. And it's a fascinating study. You can Google it when you get home. Don't Google it right now if you're on your phones. Don't do that when you get home. Did you get that? But it, it was fascinating because one of the, the findings of this of the study was that the tongue speakers were actually more emotionally stable and balanced than the, the non-tongue speakers. And so apparently there was something cathartic, something therapeutic about being able to, to, to come and to express that which was unexpressible. And of course, we, most of us know the value of, of, of even intoning in our voice and in our body in such a way that it enables us to express something that's unexpressible. You know, there's been the song, there's been the music that just connects with your soul and it takes you beyond the actual lyrical content. You know what I'm talking about? You know, there's this great scene in um, uh, the movie Glory, which is about the 54th Massachusetts, you know, the first black, uh, 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 um, regiment, thank you. That's the word I was looking for. I was just seeing if you're listening. in the Civil War, 
And uh, anyway, there's this great scene where just before they go out to this, this battle that uh, the, the group of soldiers are gathered around the fire pits, you know, and they start singing this song, and the song goes, goes, Oh, my Lord, 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 Lord. Anyway, we could, we could, like, get into it, you know. But there's this section that goes, oh, my Lord, 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 Lord. And then he goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And everyone's just kind of, mm-hmm. And you could just see, like, if you were in that moment, that inarticulate groan captures something that words did not. And I think this is something of what Paul is speaking of here. It's this experience of being enabled by the Spirit to commune with God in a language you did not previously know or with groans or with inarticulate speech that, do not, that does not have meaning to people around you, but yet it connects and it communicates meaning to God. And this brings us to our third point about tongues. Number one, it is inarticulate or unintelligible speech. Second, it is, pro- it is directed to God. And then thirdly, it is prompted or it is enabled or empowered by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul puts it like this. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit, then he lists these you know, various kinds of gifts. And then he says this, at the very end of the list, he says, to one is given by the Spirit various kinds of tongues. In other words, this is not simply a human phenomenon. It's not just a human being kind of working up their own imagination. But Paul wants to say, no, there is an experience that the Spirit of God is involved with. Now listen, that is not to say that every single experience people have of speaking in tongues is something that God has enabled and God has prompted. I was reading another set of studies uh, a couple weeks ago about this phenomenon, and they did other research of, that recorded people who were speaking in tongues, and then they did an analysis of whether or not it followed any kind of language patterns. And then they had two people that claimed to have the gift of interpreting tongues interpret the same set of messages, and the interpretations were wildly different. And so there certainly is plenty of abuse, but listen, this is not unique to this spiritual manifestation. There is good and bad teaching, and there is good and bad leadership in the church. There are, where, wherever the Spirit of God is manifest in the life of the church, there are also distortions and counterfeits, and certainly this is no exception. And perhaps this lends itself to even greater abuse and greater deception, and certainly it did in the church of Corinth because there is something that sounds kind of mysterious and looks kind of strange about this practice, And so if you are in a community of people where everyone seems to have this and you don't, you feel a little bit insecure. And so you got to kind of, you know, fake it till you make it, you know, kind of situation. And maybe, you know, that goes on in a lot of communities because people feel like I'm better because I've got this, this prayer language. But you poor people, you can't express what I can in these heavenly tongues. Paul actually is confronting that very attitude of superiority in this text, and he's saying, look, you are not superior if you have this experience. In fact, he sets it at the end of all of his gift lists, and his whole point in chapter 14 is to show the superiority of prophecy over tongues. Now, we'll get into that next week, but I go through all this to point out simply this. There is one way in which the gift, this spiritual manifestation is different than all of the other gifts of the Spirit. There was something unique about this one. 
Do you guys remember how we talked about spiritual gifts a couple weeks ago? I expect a, a good response. But we described spiritual gifts in, in a sense like this. We said, look, spiritual gifts, they're not your, your spiritual superhero power. It's not like your spiritualized Myers-Briggs. Oftentimes it's taught, you know, that once you become a Christian and you're born with natural gifts, but once you become a Christian, you're born again, you get at least one spiritual gift. Some of us have two or three spiritual gifts. And so what we need to do is we need to take a scientific, modern analysis, self-analysis, and kind of discern what our spiritual gifts are. And then the church takes the results of our tests and then they plug you into a ministry that is well suited for your spiritual gifts. Anybody here had that experience? Anybody here ever found that to be helpful? I don't actually think that's what Paul means when he talks about spiritual gifts. Instead, I think what he means are spirit-prompted, spirit-enabled words or deeds or leadership or service that meets the needs of people with the result of them being built up and encouraged. Now, it might be connected with an ongoing role like a pastor-teacher. I hope and pray that I'm enabled by the Spirit of God week after week with a gift, a spiritual manifestation of teaching among you all. But it also may be spontaneous and in the moment and, and, and a, and a one-time experience where I just, I get this sense when I'm among a group of people, I'm like, I've got to say this to you. It doesn't mean I'm a prophet. It doesn't mean that I'm, you know, a healer or whatever. You know, if I, if I feel like I need to pray for healing for this person, it just means that in that moment, the Spirit of God is prompting me to pray over this person or to speak this word to this person or to perform this act of service on their behalf, to bring them a meal or whatever, to the end that they are built up. And so this is what I think Paul is talking about when it comes to the manifestations, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But here is where the gifts of, of, of time, or let me say one more thing. In this way, spiritual gifts are not so much a gift that you have that's in your possession as it is a gift that God wants to give to somebody else through you. So James Dunn put it like this. He said, a gift is never, strictly speaking, my gift. It is rather given to me only in the sense that God chooses to act through me for the sake of others. Isn't that beautiful? God wants to act through you for the sake of others. He wants to do that this morning. He wants to do that this week. He wants to do that in your home and in your neighborhood and in your place of employment, at your schools, among your, your roommates, among your classmates. God wants to use you as a conduit to bring a gift to others, to build them up. So he says, in an important sense, a gift is not given to me at all, but only to the one to whom the gift serves. But here is where tongues is unique. Tongues is the only gift I'm aware of in this list that is not so much for others. God is using me as a conduit to bless others. Instead, it becomes a gift for me. And that's why Paul says, look, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. He is thankful for this gift. And he says in verse uh, three, he says this. He says, on the other hand, he says, the one who prophesies speaks to other for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. But listen, look at verse four. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, this is, yes, it's, a, it's in unintelligible speech, 
that's directed to God. The Spirit may prompt and enable somebody to, to engage in this communication with God that communicates meaning to God. And Paul says that builds up the person. But because it only builds up the speaker of tongues, he says, when you come together as a church, he says it shouldn't be this free-for-all where different people are speaking in tongues because this is a place where we should gather to build each other up. And listen, the end of the Christian life is not you. The end, the goal of God's work in you is not you. It is that God may bless and serve and help others through you. And this is why God does work in you so that he might use you as a conduit. And Paul says that's why this one is at the very bottom rung of the list because it doesn't meet the very aim of the Christian life, which is to to bless others through you. Now, again, that doesn't mean that it's bad. Paul says, "I, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. He says, I, I, I wish that you all could, could experience this. He says, it, it's, it's good. Verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues. He says, it's not, that's a good thing. It's, it could be cathartic and therapeutic. It could be effective communion with God. And in that way, it can build you up. But Paul says, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind than 10,000 words with the tongue. Now, let's just pause, shall we? And let's just uh, change our question. So summary, what, what are tongues? It's unintelligible speech that's addressed to God, that's prompted by the Holy Spirit, and it's unique among the gifts because it is the one that builds us up rather than the one that God is using us as a conduit to bless and serve other people. But I guess the, the question is, is what, what am I, what are you, what are we supposed to do with this teaching? I mean, shall we have an in-service this morning? Instead of coming forward to receive the Lord's Supper or passing out, distributing the Lord's Supper, we're going to invite you to speak in tongues today. I mean, what are, really, what are we, I mean, for for those of you who've not grown up in a charismatic Pentecostal tradition, like what, and you find this kind of strange, you actually find it a little bit off-putting. You don't really get that sort of thing. Some of you, maybe you do speak in tongues and you grew up in that tradition and you wandered your way over into this tradition where we don't kind of have as much expressive stuff going on in our tradition and you think, man, finally Josh is speaking about this issue. <laughs> Got some amens in the front row here. We know where our charismatics are. They sit in the back. Baptists are in the front. The Baptists are always in the back. So let let me, in response to that question, what are we supposed to do with this? Let me make one general observation, and then I want to make a specific specific one. So my general observation as I look through this text, you know, Paul is doing a compare-contrast with prophecy and tongues. He talks about this mysterious experience of speaking in tongues, and then he contrasts it with this very intellectual experience of speech that teaches, that instructs, that imparts knowledge and encouragement and comfort and hope. And here's my observation. Christian spirituality is about both knowledge as well as experience. Christian, genuine Christian spirituality is about both knowledge and experience. Now, in the world of Corinth, it's fascinating because there were philosophical schools. People that would get together for dinners and they would invite traveling philosophers to come and comment on Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. 
And then there were mystery religions where you got together and you had these weird kind of ecstatic experiences and all this stuff. And people in the first century had a very difficult time putting Christianity on the map. Where did they fit? Were they a philosophical school that was about worldview formation and the intellect and knowledge and understanding? Or were they more about kind of experience of God? And the answer that Paul gives is both. It's both. On the one hand, Christian spirituality is grounded in true knowledge about God. Paul says, how can I benefit you unless I give to you some knowledge, some teaching, some instruction? Listen, the reason why we give such high place to instruction and knowledge in this church, why we have classes on C.S. Lewis and on science and faith and any number of issues, why we have a podcast that we're inviting you to listen to throughout the week where we explore deeper issues, is because we believe Christianity is a knowledge tradition. And there is a word from God that has been revealed to us that we need to study and learn and grow in, and that growth in Christian spirituality is growth in knowledge. But on the other hand, Christianity is not just about knowledge. Christian spirituality is also about experiences that transcend the rational and the intellect. And some of us feel uncomfortable with that because we want to be in control of everything. But you cannot tame this lion. I mean, God is beyond us. And I am just an infinitesimal speck in the whole wide universe after all. And there is much that I don't know. You know, like that line in, uh, from Shakespeare, ah, oh, but this is wondrous and strange. Then as a stranger, bid it welcome. For there are more things in heaven and on earth than are dreamt of in your philosophies. Friends, there is more to reality than, than, than what you personally understand and know and can fit in a box. God is beyond us. And so part of, of, of Christianity is not just this rich, intellectual, philosophical, theological tradition. There's also this rich, mystical tradition within Christianity. There are Christian mystics who have had profound experiences with God. And our desire as a church is not to choose one over the other, but to grow deep into both. Isn't that what you need? Isn't that what you want? But listen, above both knowledge and experience is the ethic of love. Both knowledge and experience, ultimately for Paul, are aimed at driving us toward lives of self-sacrifice to benefit and serve other people. And so if all you're doing is getting head knowledge, so that you can impress people or spout off your Bible verses and feel better than all the people in the world out there? Or if, if all you're about is having self-centered kind of private, individual, spiritual experiences that are making you more self-centered, then you have missed it. Experience and knowledge are to lead us into a life of sacrificial love. And that is Paul's, that's why Paul sets that poem of love right in the middle of his discussion about spiritual experience. So that's my general observation. Christian spirituality is about both knowledge and experience, but above all, it's about love. Let me just get really personal and just give you one specific application here. So let's talk just for a moment about speaking in tongues. Like, are you supposed to go home this week and try to pray for this gift? 
And then once you start praying for it, should you start trying it, you know, like fake it till you make it kind of thing? Like, oh, I got it. It worked, you know. Like, how does it work anyway? And very personally, this is a question I have wrestled with, I've struggled with. I can remember when I was a new Christian, I was a part of the Calvary Chapel movement, which actually tries to blend together knowledge of Scripture with spiritual experience in, I think, a beautiful way. And I remember having these moments in these times they called afterglows, where, you know, the guitar music got real soft, you know, and the lights went down, and we spent time in prayer and reflection and seeking God. And we'd be invited to come forward, and they would pray over us. And I remember multiple times hearing an invitation to come, and they would pray over us that we might receive the gift of tongues. And I went forward, and I prayed, and nothing happened. And I didn't just do it once, but twice and three times. And I got to a point where I just thought, ah, that's... I don't really get that whole thing. And then uh, getting back into this text over the last couple of weeks, I, 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 I was thinking, well, maybe <laughs> I want everything the Lord has for me, don't you? You know, I remember Chuck Smith, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, he used to say, I want to be under the spout where the glory comes out. <laughs> Just as awesome. <laughs> I want to be under, I want, every, I, don't want to, I, don't, I want everything the Lord has for me. And so I thought, well, I don't know, why not? And I thought, I think I'll, I'll go to the place that I know that, that if there's one place in the world where God can be found, and I went surfing. <laughs> and I was out in the water, and I was just praying, and I was, seeking, I was asking, God, you know, and then I kind of tried, and nothing happened. <laughs> And then I was listening to a sermon by a guy named John Mark Comer, who I listen to sometimes. He's a pastor up in, in Portland. And he, he's, you know, they're, they're really great, kind of more charismatic, but also richly biblical, theological kind of church. And he told these two stories uh, of friends of his. First, so these were direct conversations he had with pastor friends who had these experiences. Experience one was a pastor was leading a conference on the Holy Spirit. And he said there was a guy at the conference who was from Romania. It was in Europe. And the guy who was from Romania just thought the whole thing was bogus, all this talk about, you know, the spirit and this, that, and the other, you know, prophecy and tongues and all this stuff. And they had an afterglow time where the leader was up front kind of leading this time. And this guy got up and he started to walk out of the room. And as he was walking out, the leader, who was John Mark Comer's friend, spoke in his prayer language, his spoken tongues. And the guy stopped dead in his tracks and he came back and he just broke down. And what he spoke, he said, was an ancient dialect of Romanian. And he spoke a scripture, the direct words of a scripture that was tattooed on his father's back. Just saying. And then he said there was another experience that he had, or that a friend of his, he said just recently, this friend related to this experience, he was in a prayer meeting, and um, this guy spoke, uh, he was, spoke in his prayer, he prayed out in tongues. He sp and and uh, there was a couple there who was about ready to go on the mission field. They didn't know each other. It was kind of like a group of strangers that had got together and prayed. And when the guy spoke in tongues, apparently he spoke in French. He had never known French before. And this couple were about ready to go to France. And they had just learned the language. And they were terrified of going. And they just felt like God had kind of spoke to them. Now, I heard both of those stories, and I experienced FOMO. <laughs> you guys know FOMO, fear of missing out? 
And I think, if, 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 if them, why not me? Like, I want to have some of those cool experiences, you know? Like, I'm open, aren't you? And friends, let's be open. Let's seek God. Let's be sensitive to God. Let's go deep in the intellect. Let's go deep in the scripture. Let's go deep in study. But let's also be a people that's open to the spirit of God. But here's what kind of struck me as I was kind of, I was wrestling with this. I was thinking about it, like, why? We don't, how does this work? You know, why don't I get more of this stuff, you know? And then um, I want to close with this diagram. Nothing more inspirational in all of preaching than closing with a diagram. <laughs> but it's interesting, Paul, here's how Paul thinks about this stuff. On the very outer ring, like the thing that I guess is of least concern, that's of, of it's like on the most peripheral, are the manifestations of the Spirit the ways in which the Spirit of God is working and moving among us and convicting us and prompting us and moving us to go serve here or to speak this word or to encourage this person or to pray for healing or whatever. There's ways in which the Spirit of God is at work among us. But that is all aimed at building up the community of faith. It's, got a, a, it's a vehicle that takes them to a destination of building up the church. And that's all aimed at forming us all into a community of self-sacrificing, self-giving love. And so friends, this is our aim as a church, is to be formed into a community of character who reflect the character of Jesus and how we love each other. And we do this because at the very heart of the gospel, at the very center of Christianity, is God's own, not his disclosure of himself and all kinds of brilliant, you know, spiritual man. Jesus didn't come around and it's just like, you know, kind of floating around on the clouds and glowing all the, I mean, he did glow on the mountain, but not typically. Instead, he, he served. And he loved and he gave himself ultimately the greatest expression of the Spirit's work in the life and ministry of Jesus was his own glad, self-giving death on a cross. And here is where the clearest expression of the Spirit's work is among us, is when we sacrifice, when we lay down ourselves for the sake of each other.